Well, hello, Calvary. It's really good to be back. Thank you for being here for Sunday School. Let us begin. We are continuing our study of the Gospels today, and our lesson is entitled, The Birth of Christ. Last week, we looked at God's announcements to both Zacharias and Mary regarding what God was about to do. And God affirmed that the two children that would be born of them would begin the fulfillment of God's many Old Testament prophecies to bring salvation and restoration to Israel. And not just to Israel, but to the world. The first child, John, would be the forerunner, and then the second child, Jesus, would be the king, would be the Messiah, would be the Son of God himself. Everything was taking place, and this is what we emphasized last week. Everything was taking place according to God's perfect, glorious plan. It's a plan that exalts the humble and shames the proud. It's a plan that includes everyone, even the outcasts of Israel, even the Gentiles. And this had always been God's plan. And what was man to do in response to this plan? He was to believe, he was to rejoice. And he was to live a life that demonstrated submission to that plan. Now today we're going to see a little bit more of what we've looked at. We're going to see more of just what an astounding salvation plan God has always had. And we'll see what an astounding Savior God has always had. That God has provided, that he had planned to provide, and that he did provide for all men. Now as we look further at the birth of Christ today, it is again important for us to remind, or I guess I'll remind you, to beware familiarity. You probably know this chapter of the Bible, or you maybe heard or read this chapter of the Bible more than any other because it's so associated with Christmas. But how well do you really know the story of Christ's birth, the account of Christ's birth? Have you fallen prey to certain traditions about Jesus' birth that actually aren't in the Bible? And even if you do know all the details of Jesus' birth, do you appreciate their magnitude? Let us come to this account with fresh eyes. Let us put ourselves back in the place of Mary, of Joseph, of the shepherds, of the people of Israel, and of the converts that were won under Paul's ministry, those Gentile converts. Let's hear this account, or let's experience this account from their perspectives. We cannot take this news lightly. We are to be amazed and be affected once again one of the most astounding, one of the most unthinkable events in history, the incarnation of God. We're going to be focusing on Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20 today. We're going to read, we're going to read and observe the text. We'll interpret it, and we'll apply it to our lives. That's basically our outline for today. This is our inductive Bible study method. We're going to see it in action. Let's pray. God, thank you for answering Our prayers to bring Emma and me back safely to Calvary. I pray, God, that this time of Sunday school would be rich as we look at your word, as we look at the account of Christ's birth. I pray, God, that you give me the ability to explain it. But I pray most of all that we would be affected by this word. This is really amazing what we're talking about. I pray that you would help me to uh, display that and help the people to appreciate that, understand that, and, and apply it. I pray, God, that you would bless this time, work among your people. Amen. Okay, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's page 1020. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 to 20. This is the 
specific account of Christ's birth. Luke is the only one who gives us this information. The other gospel accounts record things a little differently, but Luke is the only one who gives us what we see here. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Let's read. Now in those days, decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, or, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God, for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Okay. Let's begin our study of this text with simple observations. Notice the timing details of verses 1 and 2. We are in the reign of Caesar Augustus. Augustus, formerly known as Octavian, became the first emperor of Rome after he defeated his last remaining rival, Mark Anthony, at the Battle of Actium in AD 31. Augustus kept the facade of a Roman Republic, but in fact he ruled Rome as emperor from 27 BC to AD 14. So we know we're within that range. The text here says, though, that Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the whole world. And we should understand the, the, word, the term whole world as all the Roman Empire. But multiple censes were administered during Augustus' reign. There was a cycle of censuses. So Luke clarifies for his audience that He's referring to the first census that occurred while Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
So with that information, Luke's audience is able to know the exact year that Luke is talking about. But we're not as familiar with the, government, or the time of government of Quirinius, so we have to combine this information from Luke with the information we hear from Matthew and also what we've discovered via archaeology to try and understand what year Luke is talking about. I'm going to leave that puzzle for next week because next week we talk about Herod, and that's the final piece of the puzzle that the Bible gives us concerning the date, the date of Christ's birth. But for now, I will repeat that we're looking at a date within, or probably within the range of A.D. 6 to 4, so A.D. 6, 85, or A.D. 4 for Christ's birth. That's the year we're in. Now notice verse 3. This census requires everyone in uh, requires everyone in Judea to return to a city of his ancestral tribe. Joseph, like Mary, is from the tribe of Judah and the line of David, so he travels with Mary from Nazareth in Galilee, which would be in northern Israel, to Bethlehem in Judea. They'd be going south, and both of them register there. Now, think back to our previous lessons. Why is Bethlehem significant? Old Testament prophecy about Bethlehem? Where was it? Not Malachi, but close. Micah. Micah 5.2. Which says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So the Old Testament said, Bethlehem, this otherwise common, not that important town, that's going to be the place where my ruler is going to come from. That's going to be the place where the Messiah comes from. Did Joseph and Mary know that when they were on their way? Maybe it was in their minds, but that's the city that they end up going to. Also notice Luke uses the phrase, the city of David. He didn't have to use that phrase. This happens to be where David was from. By using the phrase city of David, what should this bring back to mind for the reader or hearer who's at least somewhat familiar with the Old Testament? Exactly, the Davidic covenant that God promised to David, your, your house is going to have the throne of Israel forever. And when we saw the, the Davidic line lose the kingship when the, the kingdom of Judah was ended, we, we are wondering about that promise. When is the Davidic king going to return? So Luke includes that phrase, the city of David, and that should perk up his audience's ears if they know anything about the Davidic covenant. Oh, David. Ah, the Messiah from the Davidic line. And so all of that is associated with Bethlehem. Now, what form of transportation did Mary and Joseph use to get to Bethlehem? Donkey? Possibly, but the text doesn't say. It just says that they went to Bethlehem. Uh, We don't know what kind of transport, if they used a transport, if they used an animal at all. We don't know if they did, and we don't know what kind of animal that they, did, that they used. Certainly the tradition is that they used a donkey, but that's not actually in the text. We also don't know how pregnant Mary was when she was uh, traveling to Bethlehem. Our image is that she was very pregnant. It's like, whoa, get her to a place because she's about to give birth. That's usually the way it's represented, but the Bible doesn't actually say that. The phrase here about when she gives birth simply says, while she was there. So that could have been immediately. It could have been a little bit afterwards. We're not told specifically in the text. But Mary does give birth, and, uh, or she gives birth, and 
we have Jesus, her firstborn, the one conceived by the Holy Spirit, the one on whom all the promises of the Old Testament center, the one whom Gabriel would veal, revealed would be called the Son of God. This Jesus comes into the world. Now notice what Mary does as soon as Jesus is born. She wraps newborn Jesus in swaddling cloths and lays him in a manger. Now what's a manger? Feeding trough for animals. This feeding trough was probably filled with straw and made into a makeshift bed or crib for the newborn babe. I imagine it was somewhat cleaned up too. Now notice the reason for Mary's use of the manger. It says for, wait, let me find it again, or because there was no room for them in the inn. She laid them in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now this word inn. Hmm. The word for inn here is kataluma, and it means literally lodging place. So inn is not a bad translation of that word. An inn is certainly a place where someone might lodge. But there is a good reason, or there are good reasons for us to understand this word otherwise than in in this passage. The word katalima only appears three times in the New Testament. One time here, one other time in Luke, and one time in Mark. The other two times, it is used, and that's Mark 14, 14, and Luke 22, 11, it is used to describe the upper room or the guest room in which Jesus has the Passover meal with his disciples. The quotation is, where is the katalima in which I may eat with my disciples? Where is their guest room? That's significant. Furthermore, when in appears again in the book of Luke, when the New American Standard translates a word that means in, in Luke 10.34, that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. We have an innkeeper there, by the way, an in and an innkeeper. It's not the same word. It's not kataluma. It's a different word. Also, in the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, we see another word translated in, but it's not kataluma. In Acts 28.15, when Paul passes through the area known as the three inns, it's not the word kataluma, it's the word taverne, where we get tavern. And would Mary and Joseph really have wanted to stay in an inn? Inns in the Greco-Roman world were not like our inns or hotels today. They were usually seedy places where prostitutes plied their trade. Most travelers in the Roman world, both Jew and Gentile, did not go to an inn if they could help it. The usual custom was to stay with a relative or a friend in the area that you were traveling to. This is also partly, by the way, this understanding of inns in the Roman world. This is also partly why the New Testament commands that believers practice hospitality to Christians, to traveling Christians. Don't make them stay in an inn. Bring them into your own home, even if you don't know them. Show hospitality to your fellow brothers. So we have this background of inns, and perhaps inns in Judea weren't as bad as elsewhere. You'd hope, at least, the Jewish inns wouldn't be the same with the inns in Jewish lands. Nevertheless, the prevailing custom of travel at the time was to stay in someone's guest room rather than in an inn. So translating kataluma as guest room makes more sense in this context based on the historical background and really common sense. I mean, because think about it. Did Joseph and Mary really set out for Bethlehem with no idea of where they would stay? Wondering, hoping there might be room in a local inn? No, they probably had relatives in Bethlehem. And they planned to stay with one of those relatives. Relatives that could help Mary with the baby help her deliver the baby? I mean, because Joseph probably was young like Mary herself. He's never dealt with a baby before or labor. What help is he going to be? 
No, she probably was, they probably were going to rely on the help of some relatives. But when they arrived in Bethlehem, they found that this guest room that they were planning on staying in was already occupied. After all, many people were traveling to register for the census, and another relative happened to lodge in the same house. So does this relative just toss them out on the street? Sorry, guest room's already occupied. you got to go. No. Would we do that if one of our relatives showed up to our door? Sorry, no room for you. I've already got someone in our guest room. No, we would make room somewhere else in the house. And remember, the Jews especially were focused on hospitality. It was a mark of Jewish respectability to be hospitable. But never throw one of your relatives out onto the street. So what does this relative do? Upon seeing Mary and Joseph and their clear need, the relative clears other space in the home, space that would be normally reserved for the animals, for the animals at night. Because you see, and I'll show you some pictures to illustrate this, many Jewish homes at this time had a small courtyard for animals. They might keep uh, some chickens or a mule or a donkey or something like that. Normally during the day they'd be out in the courtyard, but at night those animals would be brought inside the house, into the first floor. They'd be brought into what would normally be the living space for the people of the house. That's where they'd stay at night. So then, whomever is accommodating Joseph and Mary probably sets up the couple in this area normally used for animals, where they normally would sleep. And they help Mary deliver and take care of the baby. The manger probably was part of the nightly setup for these animals or was simply taken from the courtyard as a place, a convenient place to place Jesus. So with some of this discussion, you should be seeing by now that we have to check many of our modern notions of what giving birth was like in ancient times. Because that's not what it's like for us at all today, is it? For us, it's the father and the mother going alone to the hospital and coming out with a baby. But that's nothing like what it was like in Jesus' time. On the contrary, in ancient cultures, you have the whole family coming together when someone is giving birth. The whole family is coming together to help, relatives coming together to help and celebrate the birth of a new member of the clan. It was a family time. And it's not as if you say, well, didn't she have this baby without being married to Joseph? Wouldn't they be shunning her because of that? Well, later on in this chapter, we see Joseph, Mary, and Jesus traveling to Jerusalem, and they're traveling with relatives, both to and from, relatives and acquaintances. They were not outcasts from Jewish society, whatever people thought about her pregnancy. They were still connected to their relatives and to other people. They were not ostracized. So having a family coming together, having Joseph and Mary seeking to stay with a relative in their guest room makes sense. Therefore, we probably should get rid of the innkeeper, stable, the cave, and other similar elements that come from our imagined recreations of the nativity. These elements are simply tradition. They do have strong tradition, but they're simply tradition and not really supported by what the Bible says or the Bible's historical context. But if you set up a nativity in your home and have the stable and the donkeys and all that kind of stuff, you're not doing, you're not sinning. That's okay. Now, saying all this, I don't want you to think that Jesus being put into a feeding trough was normal. That certainly was not common baby care practice. Also, even though Jesus probably wasn't born in the stable per se, he nonetheless was born in a very humble setting. 
There's no glory in being born in a common house for common people in an area where animals normally sleep or in being lain in an animal's feeding trough. What Luke is describing then is a very poignant entry of the Son of God into the world. This is how he came. Now, it just so happened that there were also some shepherds tending flocks in the same area at night. Tending flocks by night. And to what class of society did shepherds belong? They were low class, lower class. Not, not very important. Not very respected. But notice what these shepherds see. Suddenly, an angel stands before them, and the glory of the Lord shines all around them. Now, what do we call the visible glory of the Lord? The Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of the Lord. The special, dazzling glory of God's presence. And when was the last time in the Old Testament that God's Shekinah glory was seen on earth? Yes. When did that glory depart the temple? It did happen before the exile. What book of the Bible features a vision of that glory departing the temple? Ezekiel. That's right. Ezekiel Ezekiel sees the glory of God departing. He also sees a vision of the glory of God coming back. That's a prophecy of what God is going to do in the future. But the glory departed. The visible glory, the visible um, dazzling presence of God, the, the sign of God's presence left Israel. But now we see that Shekinah again. We see it back on earth. And it's all around these shepherds as this angel speaks to them. And notice the shepherds' response. They are terribly afraid. Are we about to die? They probably thought. You see something supernatural like that. You think your life is about to end. But notice what the angel says. And we're not surprised by this by now because we've seen it twice already in the book of Luke. Do not be afraid. Don't fear. Why? For I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for whom? For all the people. I just set off a little alarm bell in your mind. Ding, 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 all the people. What was Luke's purpose? I mean, he's showing that salvation is for all men. Then we get another four in the text, another reason, another explanation for why the shepherds should not fear. For a Savior has been born for you in the city of David, that is Bethlehem. The city that you're right nearby, the town that you're right next to with your flocks, a Savior has been born there for you. Who is this Savior? The angel says he is Christ the Lord. Remember Christ, just the word for Messiah, anointed one. The Lord, that phrase, the Lord, uh, the term Lord means master, but it is also the New Testament's way of rendering the, the name of God from the Old Testament, Yahweh. We usually see the term Yahweh in the Old Testament sometimes in in all capital letters. In the New Testament, we don't see the the term Yahweh or Jehovah spelled out. Instead, we see Lord, the Lord. Even later on in this passage, there's the use of the term Lord to describe God. And so many argue that that's actually what's being declared here. This is Christ God. This is Messiah God. That's what the angel declared. And then he gives a sign. The angel gives a sign to the shepherds regarding this announcement. He says, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a feeding trough. 
When you see a newly born baby swaddled in claws and lying in a manger, you'll know that what I've declared to you is true. And you will have found the Messiah. And notice their next action. Or notice the next action, not the shepherds acting yet. Suddenly a multitude of the heavenly host. And whenever you see the term host, think army. Host is an army term, military term. A multitude of the heavenly army of angels appears, and they are all praising God and saying, Glory be to God in the highest place, and peace be on earth among men with whom God is pleased. Now this statement is where, or this statement about the multitude of angels is where we get the lines for the Christian hymn, Angels We Have Heard on High. Glory to God in the highest is the same as Gloria in Excelsis Deo, in Latin. Now, the hymn describes the angels as singing. But notice, that's not actually what it says here. It says that we see the verbs they were praising and they were saying. Now, could praising mean singing? It could. Possibly, though. Or, it, possibly. But it's interesting, when I just did a, a brief study on angels singing in the Bible, I can only find two places where angels are explicitly said to sing. Most of the time in the Bible, they just speak. They do praise. They do say. Not very often sing. But whether they were singing or speaking, this must have been an awe-inspiring sight. You have this mighty angelic army all around, or all in the sky. You've got the Shekinah glory all around. You've got this angel standing before the shepherds, and they are praising God and announcing peace to men. And isn't it striking that it's an angelic army? That is proclaiming peace. And notice that when this vision ceases, the shepherds hurry to Bethlehem to see what God had made known to them. And eventually they find their way to Mary and Joseph. Now, how did they find Mary and Joseph? It's funny, when you look up the pictures of this scene, if you type in Luke 2 shepherds on Google Images or something like that, you see um, them following the star. Well... I don't know if we can really say that. There's no mention of a star in this passage. And yes, the wise men are associated with a star. That's how they find Jesus. But did the star really appear now? Maybe. That wasn't the way that the angels said that they would find them. They are to be looking for a different sign. My guess as to how they found Mary and Joseph is that they basically were searching the town for a residence where the people were still up. That they're still up in the middle of the night. So remember, this is in a world without electricity, before electricity. And so nighttime, there's much less activity. Nighttime is primarily meant for sleeping. You could stay up if you had a lamp and do something like that, but most of the time, night was for sleeping. So perhaps they were just looking for a home that was all lit up because most of the other houses in Bethlehem would be dark. And there probably was an extra amount of noise coming from this house because you've got the birth taking place, you've got the relatives all working and ooing and aahing over the baby, talking with one another, asking, get this, get that. So there's some noise coming from a certain house. This house is lit up, there's noise from this house, and maybe the neighbors nearby, they're up too, because they're, they want to know what's going on. What's the commotion? What's going on? So maybe they're up too. So they're just looking for the light and looking for the sound. Some way or other, the shepherds do find the house of Mary and Joseph, and then they see the sign. See what the angels had foretold. There's the swaddled newborn Jesus in the manger, in a feeding trough. The arrival of the shepherds probably created even more noise. Got, we don't know how many shepherds there were, at least more than one. And they, 
they come through and they're talking and they, they probably are celebrating and so they're getting more people awake. Oh, what, what is going on out there? People start coming to their doors, trying to figure out what's going on. And notice, notice what the shepherds do next. They make known the angelic vision. They declare, an angel appeared to us, told us that the Savior and Messiah had been born. They told us that we would find him here in Bethlehem, swaddled in a manger, and here he is, just as the angel had said. We saw a whole host of angels giving glory to God and declaring peace to men. This child is our Messiah. And notice, to whom do the shepherds say this? To everyone, everyone who's there. And then notice the responses. We see three different responses. The people wondered at what the shepherds declared. Mary treasured and pondered these things in her heart. And the shepherds returned to their flocks, glorifying and praising God. So we've made our observations on the text. Let's now go to step two. Let's consider interpretation. Work through some interpretation questions. Notice that the angels appear to shepherds near Bethlehem and not to the people of Bethlehem or even the priests in Jerusalem. This was God's choice. How does this choice of God connect with the themes of Luke and even of the New Testament as a whole? The announcement was made to shepherds and not to others. How does that connect with the themes of the New Testament? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, exactly. And we see that most explicitly declared in 1 Corinthians. It says, God has chosen the weak of the world to shame the strong. This is fundamental to the gospel. This is fundamental to salvation. God takes the humble and exalts them, and he takes the proud and he shames them. He brings them low. And we see another instance of that here. God has chosen the shepherds to be the ones who would herald the coming of Jesus. That's the ones to whom he made the announcement. Low class, not important. He says, they're going to be my heralds. And even that is a theme we see throughout all of Luke. It's these not important people. It's these outcasts of society that are frequently having an important role. We had Zacharias and Elizabeth, old, barren couple. They had the shame of not having children. And you have Mary, some no-name young woman in Nazareth. She's chosen to bear the Son of God. Now we have these shepherds. Shepherds being highlighted for a special blessing and for declaring that Messiah has come. This is not an accident. This is God's choice, exalting his gospel. Now notice the emphasis on joy in the angel's message. I bring you um, good news of great joy. What's so joyful about this news? Perhaps this is obvious to you, but what's so joyful about this? what's happening here? We have the birth of a Savior. And what do we need, what do we need saving from? from sin, from death, from the curse. This is great news. This is joyful news. God has provided a Savior. That Savior has finally come. He had foretold a Savior was coming, but now he's come. The one who's going to save us from our sins. The one who's going to buy us back. The one who's going to cover us. And we could even broaden that to connect Jesus and his coming with many other Old Testament promises. 
God is going to remember Israel. God is going to exalt Israel, restore Israel, keep his promises to them. But those promises are going to be broadened to embrace even the Gentiles throughout the world. All this is coming to pass. It's beginning to happen. Those promises are being fulfilled. This is great news. This is a huge benefit to mankind that is now manifest. This is joyful news. Now, in what sense was God announcing peace? Peace on earth. In what sense was God announcing peace in verse 14? Peace between men and God. Has that, you're right, has that, um, let me say it this way, does that apply to all men automatically? No, how will men be at peace with God? It will be through this child. This is, first of all, not a mere announcement of that ambiguous feeling of peace. Everything's okay, everybody. Don't worry. Be happy. Peace on earth. No, that's not what it's about. This is about, as you correctly identified, this is about peace with God. Man has been in rebellion. Man has been at war with God. And God is heralding an overture of peace. This peace does lead to that feeling of wholeness, that feeling of everything being okay. But man ought not to feel that way until he actually is that way with God. Until he actually is at peace with God. Yes, Roy. Right. Thanks, Roy. I'll just repeat your comment briefly. <laughs> this, this phrase can be easily mischaracterized, especially by people in the world. Peace on earth to men of goodwill. We'll actually talk about that latter phrase in just a second. But no, this is not about men earning peace or men automatically having peace. God is saying peace is available. You can be at peace. You're not automatically already at peace with God, but you have a way to be at peace. And that way is now being revealed. The mediator has arrived. The advocate has arrived. The high priest has arrived. Peace is now available to men through this one. Now getting to a little bit of what Roy was saying, in what sense is God pleased with men? There are the ways that are, this, verse is, this second part of the verse 14 is translated, but the New American Standard says, peace on earth and, actually let me go back to the verse so I don't misquote it. Among men with whom he is pleased. In what sense is God pleased? Well, this is certainly not men earning God's favor. Or that man is innately good somehow, and therefore they please God. No, we know the rest of the scriptures, they get rid of that idea. So we must understand this phrase similarly to how we understood the statement given to Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace is how it's often quoted, but that just means favored one. You've received favor from God. Not based on what you've done, but because God simply was pleased to give it to you. Greetings. You have received God's favor just by his own grace. Same thing with men. You have received the pleasure of God. You've received the favor of God, not based on anything that you've done, but based on how good God is. He's chosen to show you favor. He's given you unmerited favor, what we call grace. He's given you unmerited favor by sending this, this child, by sending this one. 
He will save you from your sins. That's unmerited favor. And that God was pleased to do that. Now, why do the angels, after this announcement, why do the multitude of angels appear and they all give glory to God? Why would that be a necessary next action? Glory to God in the highest. Why why appear and say that? Yeah, Bob. That's so that we don't miss the point that what's happening is extremely glorious. The angels cannot help but appear, all of them, the multitude, the hosts, and say, glory to God. What is happening right now is incredible. Glory to God. And the incarnation is glorious. God has done many glorious and praiseworthy things in the Bible, but what is happening here in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem is one of the most glorious acts. I won't say the most glorious act because we haven't seen the cross yet, but it is one of the most glorious acts. The Son of God has become a man in order to save men. How glorious. And we see specifically in this act some of the attributes of God. What attributes of God are being highlighted here? His grace, his mercy. This was undeserved, but look, he's pouring it out. He's pouring out grace. What else? Humility. That is really interesting. This is a striking display of the humility of God. Now you'd think, someone like God, who deserves all glory, how could he be humble? How could he even demonstrate humility? Ah, but that's what he did in sending his son in the incarnation. We would otherwise never be able to see the humility of God, but we see it here because consider the depth to which the eternal God is stooping in this act. The uncontainable God is taking on the form of a finite man. He who dwells in unapproachable light is being born in a common home in Bethlehem and laid in a feeding trough. He who has all power and majesty is being born as a helpless baby. With all that being a baby entails, burping, diaper changes, feeding. What a downgrade. But the Son does it willingly for the sake of the Father, out of love for the Father, for the sake of the ones that the Father has given him, for the sake of us, for the sake of his elect. Truly, without the incarnation, we would never know the profound humility of God as displayed in the Son. And that humility is beautiful. That humility is glorious. So we see the humility. We see God's grace. We could also say we see God's love. Just think about the incredible loss of privileges that God, has, that God the Son is willingly choosing to save unworthy men. He's choosing to suffer to do us good. That is love. That is a love and that is deep compassion. And we also see the faithfulness of God. Of course, this is throughout, but God promised this would happen and he's bringing it to pass. All these things are glorious. But who would have ever thought? Who would have ever thought that God would do it this way? that God would do such a thing, that he would show such love and such humility, such loveliness and such beauty. It is as Isaiah 53 says, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the strong arm of the Lord been revealed? The Old Testament foretold that God would do this. Yet it was too wonderful to be fully understood and believed. 
No one could have expected that God would reconcile man to himself by becoming a man. Yet, that was what was completely necessary. It couldn't be any other way. Reconciliation could not happen any other way. But this certainly is not how man would do it. Man would have God come in pomp and circumstance right into Jerusalem, be born with the splendor of royalty. Really, man would have God affirm a man's innate goodness and congratulate man on earning God's favor. Man would have God deliver man from just the temporal evils. Yes, stop our sickness, end our poverty, deliver us from political oppression. Eh, you don't really need to worry about sin or our hearts. That's what man would have. Man would rather have God deliver man so that man could actually serve idols. Just let us keep going after our idols. We would really appreciate that. But God will have none of that. God will not come in the way that man desired and not come for the purpose that man desired. God will deliver man in his own incredible way. And he, the whole time, will affirm man's unworthiness and God's greatness. Truly, God's way is far better than anything man could come, could come up with. And God's way makes sure that God gets all the glory. So, brothers and sisters, behold with wonder the astounding plan of God's salvation and the astounding Savior who was born a man to save all men. Now, just to confirm the magnitude of what's happening here in Luke 2, let's briefly turn over to John 1. John chapter 1, we'll just look at the first 14 verses. All the Gospels affirm the deity of Christ, but perhaps due to some of the issues of his own day, John is even more explicit than the other Gospels about Jesus' deity. And we see that even here in the beginning of John 1. So John 1, we're going to read... We won't really analyze this passage, but we'll make a few observations on it. John 1, verses 1 to 14. Here's John's version of describing the incarnation of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We'll read one more verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus was born, God himself came into the world. Not a God, the God. You know, probably, John 1, 1, from the Greek, there's no reason to supply an indefinite article A and the word was a God. No. John 1, 1 equates the word with God. They are the same, and yet they can dwell together. They are the same, yet different. They are plural Godhead. They are a trinity. 
And verse 3 makes this point even more emphatic. It's like John wants to make sure there's no way that you can come away from this passage and not know that Jesus is God. Because what does he say in verse 3? All things came into being through this word, through him. Nothing came into being without the word. Two ways of saying the same thing. Essentially what he said in verse 1. The only uncreated being is God. And everything that was created came into being through the word. So how could the word be a created being? If all things came into being through the word and nothing came into being without the word, then the word is uncreated. It can't be created because it's the one that caused everything to be created. Conclusion, the word is God. The word that dwelt with God is God. So the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, they have no leg to stand on here. John will not let them. The word, the light, God himself, he took on flesh. He entered this fallen world. He dwelt with sinful, even rejecting men, and he manifests the truth and the glory of God. And brothers and sisters, this all really happened. This is not some story we rehearse as part of our culture, part of our tradition. This is not some mere element of religion that we make sure that we have straight so that we can feel good about ourselves. I know the story of Jesus well. No, this is history. God actually did this. He sent his son into the world to save sinners like you and me. Is that not wondrous? We did not deserve it. We didn't deserve this. Here's what we did deserve. We deserve God sending Jesus into the world to destroy us. We deserve God to announce peace, not by sending an advocate on our behalf, but by sending his commander to wipe us out. He would have made peace that way. That's the way he could have made peace. But that is not what God did. That's not what God did. And Luke 2 tells us that's not what God did. He instead sent, he sent his son to become a man to save all men. Who would have ever thought it? Who could have ever imagined it? How beautiful. How glorious. So how should we apply this word? There are many things we could say. I want to highlight five points of application, but I urge you to think more on this yourself. Think other ways this account makes a difference in your life. Number one, we should believe. This message was declared to the shepherds that they might believe. The same was true of the announcement made to Zacharias and to Mary. They heard what God was about to do. We hear what God has already done. But our response should be the same as what was expected of them. We must believe the good news. We don't work for it. We can't work for it. We're simply to believe it. We should not dawdle. When the shepherds heard this word, they hurried to Bethlehem to see the child. We too must hurry to believe. There's no reason to wait. No reason to remain in darkness. Second, we should praise God. What God has done is glorious and deserves praise. Not just in your heart, but publicly. The angels are praising God here. The shepherds are praising God here. We too should be praising God. Extol the greatness of God. Declare his wondrous works. Give thanks in the assembly of believers. As the psalmist says, praise is fitting for the upright. We should be giving thanks. We should be giving thanks publicly. We should be glorifying God publicly for what he's done. Number three, ponder. 
what God has done is so profound that it deserves way more of your mental attention than we have in this hour of Sunday school. Be like Mary. Be like those who heard the shepherd's message. Treasure. Ponder this truth. Ponder this text. Think about what God has done. Consider its implications. Meditate on how you personally are connected to the incarnation and work of Jesus. And it's not a one-time thing. Really, that should be an ongoing habit. That should be a habit for all of us. We should constantly be thinking about Jesus' incarnation and work on our behalf. Number four, proclaim. Lots of Ps here. Notice not all of them are Ps. God declared good news to the shepherds, but it wasn't for them alone. Nor was it only for the people of Bethlehem. What did God say? This is for all the people. It was for all the people. Jesus commanded his disciples to share the good news. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, that applies to you. Tell others how God has provided a way of peace. Tell others about the overture of peace that God has made. Tell them that God has provided a way for wicked rebels to be reconciled to him. For how will they know, how will they believe, unless we tell them? But you say, but I thought God was sovereign. He's in control of all things. He can save all people without my sharing a peep. God is sovereign. But what has God sovereignly determined to be his means of salvation? You. Us. His people. Romans says, how will they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? Behold, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce good news. Brothers and sisters, evangelism is obedience. Therefore, let us tell people the good news. But you say, but they'll never believe it. They'll only reject me and they'll persecute me. I don't want to suffer like that for no reason. Well, some will reject your message. Many even. But some will not. Because God says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. God has laid the elect in your life paths. You are going to meet people who are elect. And as you share the good news, those people will believe and they will be saved. You will be used by God if you seek to be obedient. Now, you're still going to glorify God whether that person believes or not. Some are merely going to be confirmed in their judgment because of your message, and that's part of God's will. But don't think that, oh, it's going to be useless to share the message. No, God will draw those that he's known from the foundation of the world. We don't know who the elect are, but we know that they are out there. So let us obey Christ. Let us imitate these shepherds that we see in this passage and joyfully herald what God has done. And then number five, finally, walk worthy. This exhortation contains many of the others in it. But what God has done is so amazing, it is an unthinkable act of mercy and love. Do we dare to live in such a way that does not take this truth seriously? Yeah, God, what you did in sending Jesus is great and all, but it's not enough for me to turn from my my sin. I'm just going to keep going on my own way. I'm going to hold on to my sin. How dare we? How dare we say such a thing to God? Yeah, God, the incarnation is pretty cool, but I'm really more amazed by the things of the world. So if you'll excuse me, I need to get back to them. 
How dare we? How dare we say such a thing to God? Yeah, Jesus, you humbled yourself to the point of becoming a baby in a manger in an unremarkable town of Judah, but I'm not really interested in humble service. I'm not really interested in doing anything that costs me something or that makes me uncomfortable. How dare we? How dare we say such a thing to God? You say, oh, I don't say that. Well, maybe your actions do. Remember what Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews. How shall we escape God's judgment if we neglect so great a salvation? Brothers and sisters, if we haven't done so already, it's time to get serious. It's time to get serious about this truth. Let us beware anything less than complete devotion to Jesus. You cannot serve two masters. If you don't follow Jesus totally, then you don't follow Jesus at all. If you believe in Jesus yet continue in the same old paths of sin, you do not really believe, and you're not really at peace with God. You cannot yet claim a part in the good news of Luke 2 if you live in such a way. True disciples of Jesus walk in a manner consistent with the greatness of the salvation that's been revealed. So if you're in Christ, you should seek to be like your head. You should seek to obey your master's commands. Such is our reasonable service, as Khalif was saying last week. Listen to how Philippians specifically cites the incarnation as part of our call to holiness. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, or that is, held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, or slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, Calvary, let us walk worthy of our calling. God is worthy of such worship. That ends our lesson today. Questions or comments about what you've heard? All right. It is an incredible word that we've seen this morning. Thank the Lord that he's revealed it to us. Next week, we talk about Herod, and we talk about the visit of the wise men. And then we'll finally tackle, why do we believe that Jesus was born between 6 and 4 BC? Let's pray as we close. Our God, I've done my best to communicate how wondrous it is that you sent your Son to take on flesh, to dwell among us, and to save us. God, I pray that you would really imprint that truth on the minds of your people. It's so easy for us to take this truth lightly. It's so easy for us, out of familiarity or whatever reason, to think this is not that great, to not be affected by it. I pray that that would not be the way this morning. I pray, God, that your people would be really affected by this truth. Lord, that we would take seriously that this actually happened. Lord Jesus, that you actually did this. That you humbled yourself to the point of becoming a baby. Oh God, that is so great. That is so merciful and so instructive. Oh God, forgive us for where we have trifled so much in the world, where we have just wasted ourselves, wasted our time serving idols. Oh Lord, 
You deserve everything from us. And it is a great way that you've called us to live. God, I pray that your people would get serious, would be serious about this truth, walking joyfully, proclaiming your good news, living a life worthy of the calling that we've been given. Thank you for your salvation. Your plan is so glorious. Thank you that you've unfolded it. Thank you that you will conclude it by coming to the earth, by bringing us to yourself. I pray that you bless the rest of the service today in our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.